Welcome to Glossonomia, Conversations About the Sounds of Speech. I'm Phil Thompson, and with me, of course, is Eric Armstrong. Hey, Eric. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, As I mentioned to you before we started recording, uh, I'm on a little bit of a tight time frame. So uh, I think today we're going to limit the scope of what we talk about uh, to catch people up. This is episode 21. Okay, Um, and it's been great talking to you. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) Excellent. Bye. Well done. So, well, we'll do a little bit more. <laughs> a little more. Uh, we last time talked about lot, cloth, and thought. I'm conscientiously pronouncing those, I hope, in the way that I do. And uh, today, uh, we, we'll do a little bit of a recap on that, but I also think that we can focus on the peculiarities of lot, cloth, mergers, and splits as they occur in the east of the United States, that is particularly in New York and in Boston. Yeah, two urban centers where there's a history and uh, a good story, and also we get called upon to do these kinds of things on a fairly regular basis, basis yes. don't we? Yes, indeed. So uh, to recap, uh, our categories, uh, lot, cloth, thought, and we'll leave palm out of it for now, uh, are traditionally rounded sounds, I guess you could say. They're back vowels. Uh, For some speakers, lot and cloth and thought are merged to the same pronunciation. They Um, are for me. And although we talked last time about conjectural accents in which a three-way distinction could be made, most people either divide it up one way or the other. That is to say that their lot and cloth are different than their thought, or their lot is different than their cloth and their thought. Yeah, that's a good good way of describing it. So uh, the, I was doing a little bit of reading about the history uh, of these sounds, and I uh, ran across a sentence that sort of blew my mind, and, and that is that no sound in Old English that was pronounced ah, no word that used to be pronounced ah is pronounced ah in modern English. So all ah sounds like nama shifted towards ah and became nam or name, uh, or man became man, uh, and it was o sounds that uh, were pronounced as o. Some of them went to o and others to o. And so the two words, lot and cloth, were originally lot and cloth. And uh, goat, I suppose, would fall into that category as well. So there are sounds that were rounded, and uh, they've gone varyingly unrounded and rounded throughout history. But there are other words like swan, (laughs) uh, pronouncing it with unrounding, swan, that over the years shifted into a rounded form. And this historically is where things sort of split between England and the United States, that there were A-spelling words that were pronounced as ah, and some of them stayed as ah, and then some of the O-spelling words joined ah, joined the pronunciation ah. 
So there are a lot of swans in the war. <laughs> no, there are a lot of swans in the war. So s some sounds clustered around the rounded version and some around the unrounded version, and the spelling of A or O had some influence on that. Uh, as, I, as I said to you before we started recording, that whole history, the deeper I read into it, the more confused I got. So uh, I'll try and research that a bit more, and we'll talk about that on a future episode. For today, however, I would like to focus on Boston or Boston. So I'd say most people who have a passing knowledge of American accents, and particularly New York City accents, have a sense uh, that there's a super round version of thought words and some kind of short O word. I guess I, we ought to explain what short O means. Hmm. So when we're talking about spelling in a word like locked or clock or chop, yeah. uh, they're, they're the, that O oh sound, the lot lexical set, uh, is basically identified by words that have an O that's uh, pronounced as a sort of a short vowel, and it's yeah. followed by a consonant. It's checked off uh, by that final consonant, frequently a uh, stop plosive sound, so that it makes it a shorter um, sound. Um, whereas the cloth vowel, uh, also represented by a short O in spelling, is frequently followed by a voiceless uh, fricative consonant. Um, so uh, the, the exception uh, is gone, which is uh, O-N-E. Uh, it's the only nasal, I think, that's generally associated with um, that, that one word mm -hmm. is generally the only nasal associated with the cloth lexical set. Unless you belong to a group that says the word O-N in that on. On, on, right. So, yeah, it's interesting that when we start to talk about these sounds, I become much more aware of how many there are in our own speech. So words like consonant and follow and so forth are O spellings that have this sort of uh, shortened, certainly in terms of duration, but also this uh, opened rounding uh, that in my speech might be follow and consonant, in yours would be follow and consonant. Is that accurate, or am I overshooting that? Follow and cons consonant? Uh, there might be a slight rounding for me, follow right. and consonant. Yeah. So, so in New York City, uh, the, the lay linguist will listen to that and say, definitely they say thwart. They do something outrageously rounded on thwart words. And At least it begins outrageously <laughs> exactly, yes, exactly. thought, and then it releases into an off-glide. And, uh, and then they might hear the same thing on words like coffee or cloth or gone. Uh, although that one sounds, my intuition tells me that that one is more unstable, that it's less likely to be rounded. And certainly you've seen people writing accents spelling God as G-A-W-D, God, uh, although that, too, doesn't strike me as a sound that a uh, New Yorker would really say, that they would... Well, the New Yorker's looking for a voiced uh, stop, so uh, god or dog, you're going to get that. So the classic uh, thing 
that I, I, I use to remind people is hot dog. Yeah. Um, hot with the voiceless stop is going to go with the lot group and dog with the voiced uh, sound is going to go with the with the thought group. But I, I, I do think that there's a little bit of uh, variability. That is to say that... Absolutely. Uh, we, we can't rely on those things. And again, like so many things that we run into, we're asking our actors to develop intuitions about what categories things fall into. And then also to to by knowing the categories, to listen to the samples in such a way that they can detect those, uh, which category the word falls into. So we have this distinction. We have lot and cloth in New York City, or hot dog. That makes sense. Uh, when we get to Boston, and you and I did a little bit of research on this for a Vasta conference, uh, the distinction between lot words and cloth words gets a little bit confusing. And this is one of those things that, since there may be other features that a Boston and a New York City accent share, somebody who's trying to do a Boston accent has New York in their head, they can get a little confused about whether they should do ah or ah. So, what would I do to solve this problem? Well, I could go and look in a book, <laughs> which is what I did. Uh, uh, the uh, the De Greuter Press uh, Atlas of Varieties of English is that what that book is? Handbook of Varieties of English. Uh, I, I don't know, but it's not the Atlas of North American English. Uh, no, that's correct. Uh, it's a great big and expensive book that I don't own. Uh, however, De Greuter seems to specialize exactly exactly books I would like to have but can't afford. Uh, fortunately, they. Uh, these books are at least partially available on Google Books, and so you, I was able to find a little bit of information about this and follow that to find the original article that was quoted. What's said in this article, published in 2005, I think, is essentially lot and cloth are merged. So in Boston, you would expect to say lot and cloth. That is to say, rounded, not in that very strong round and unround version that you have in New York City, not lot and cloth, but lot and cloth. Well, that's great. It's nice to have a rule. It's nice to have uh, Naomi Neji and Julie Roberts giving their linguistic authority to that. However, uh, I also went and looked at the research that you and I had done. We listened to some recordings and uh, I pulled out of those recordings the specific examples of those, uh, the, the tokens, I guess is what they call it, uh, of mm. those phonemes. And what I got was not only not a merger, but quite a bit of variation between the two speakers. So uh, the sentence in question was, uh, the, the truck stops and you're gone. And uh, it was not stops and you're gone, it was the truck stops and you're gone. Stops was unrounded, as you might expect from a New Yorker. But this was a, a Boston firefighter in his 60s who had lived in Boston his whole life. So uh, how am I to interpret the apparent variation that I hear in samples and the uh, call to uniformity that I see in linguistic texts? I think that we have to say, all observers are imperfect. 
uh, mm-hmm. we are, our students are, and the people writing books, linguists, doing surveys, uh, they can either be fooled, they can be inaccurate, or they can be setting their acceptable tolerances too loose. So if they hear lot, 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 all three of those fall within their sense that it's round enough to be considered a merger, and that small variations person to person or word to word don't amount to a real distinct classification difference, and so they ignore them. And perhaps the linguist might be looking at a broader range of speakers, a whole array of speakers from an area, Mm -hmm. and uh, listening to a whole bunch of different tokens and different kinds of words, different uh, settings, and then doing sort of an average. Frequently, when I look at a linguistic text, they'll show a plot of a whole bunch of different words uh, from a, 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 a sample that they've they've gone through, and different words that I would identify as lot words and words that w- appear as cloth words, uh, they will make a boundary. They'll say, these words over here, they're the cloth words, and these words over here, they're the lot words. But looking at the dots on the chart, there really is no border between yeah. them, ar- other than the arbitrary traditional choices of, well, this word is spelt this way, it is cloth. But s- there may be some overlap. There would be some very close neighbors where lot and cloth might seem very, very close to one another, and in other cases, very distinct from one another. And occasionally, there'll be a word that appears in both areas. In other words, that a speaker, yeah. at some points, the, they'll say uh, lot and then lot, and then they'll say cloth and cloth. Yeah. Um, and that uh, people people are funny that mm. way. Their mouths get away from them. Certainly on this show, we've proved that <laughs> over and over, that our mouths get away from us. Uh, and that uh, uh, people are trying to speak the way they speak. That's all they're trying yeah. to do. And they're not trying to, they, they have no sense of this lot cloth difference. They just talk the way they talk. Um, yeah, I think that's I, absolutely true. So, uh, um, I think sometimes it's very easy for us to leap to conclusions based on a few tokens, and it's easy for a linguist to say, this is a generalized rule that we can observe, and then we listen to the tokens and go, what, what, they're wrong, they're wrong. There's also a little bit in this particular case, there's a sort of an echo chamber effect that uh, as a Boston speaker, I know I'm from Boston, I'm proud of the fact that I'm from Boston, and I'm definitely not from New York, and so I might speak one way at home, but when I'm in a public setting trying to evince my nationality and my locality, I might shift, I might consciously or unconsciously choose a pronunciation which sounds more authentic or more accurately represents the way I see the patterns of my accent. And the traditions from whence I came. Yeah. Right? My parents' voice a little bit, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly that's true uh, for each of us. I mean, uh, I, I will tell you that I do more rounding on my cloth words and my thought words than than I did from my background because 
my other part of my identity is voice teacher and drama student. Yes. And, and so I've adopted new ways of signaling who I am. Yeah, I mean, I remember working with some students on trying to find samples of, of good samples, we called them, <laughs> of uh, Chicago speakers when I lived in Chicago. And uh, people would bring in samples of people that they knew who'd grown up in Chicago, and we'd listen to it, and we'd go, oh, they, they're not Chicago enough. Yeah. Well, that's silly. They're from Chicago. <laughs> that's the way they speak. But they didn't have those traditional sounds that we associated with the identity of Chicago. And uh, um, that often in theater, we are looking for these sort of iconic versions of sounds. And uh, a greater distinction between uh, one lexical set and another makes it easier in a way to say, this is what we think it is. Yeah. Um, and so there, there may be an attraction for us yes, to there, greater distinction. There's a danger, too, of course, that we will hammer those strong substitutions to death, uh, yeah. that will that will overshoot them. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm in danger of opening up a can of worms here, so I'll I'll make this a foretaste of the feast to come in future episodes. But one of the things that I was reading uh, in Philip Crap's great name for a linguist, Philip Crap, uh, uh, it's uh, American. What the heck is the name? <laughs> the English language in America. Uh, he goes into a long and unsatisfying historical description of how uh, words spelled with A uh, varied in pronunciation in 17th century England and the United States, uh, and then in 18th century uh, between A, like father, and awe with rounding, and that the pronunciation ah was sort of not on the map, that really there was a gap there between those two. So a lot of times when people describe in early dictionaries that ah sound as in father, they're really indicating, with various other clues like adding a w, an aw pronunciation, father. Uh, and this was particularly true of words brought in from other languages. And the examples that he gave, uh, this is what reminded me of it, were American place names like Chicago and Utah. Mm. A lot of these words, if you think about them, with uh, ah sounds, uh, we talked about this uh, Colorado, <laughs> Nevada, uh, some of them adopted and kept a rounded version that it is at least one of the correct pronunciations of Chicago or Utah to have a full-on rounded awe sound. Uh, I think that people from Utah don't like that because their name for the people from Utah is Utahns, uh, U-T-A-H-N-S, Utahns, rather than Utahns. I don't think I've ever heard that. So it's just interesting to me that... Uh, this roundedness has bounced back and forth, and the, the very identity of category has shifted. Uh, and really, probably one of the strongest things keeping the rounded version alive is the O spelling. That uh, 
a word like spa doesn't get rounded, except apparently in Boston, where it's another word for a restaurant, a spa. Huh. Well, it, I, I certainly heard it spa. <laughs> uh, it, so uh, it, the spa, spa. Yeah, I could see Canadians saying spa. Right, because, because you have a, a, an assertive rounded category. Uh, your, your lot and cloth both lean towards roundness. Is that correct? Mm, if it's rounded, it's very slight. There, there's, there's a very few things that get rounded in Canadian speech. So, um, but uh, uh, typically, like ong words, belong, throng, those things, uh, spa could, could go with one of those. Yeah. But if you were to give me a list of lot words, uh, how would they? be realized uh, uh, a lot uh, lot stop clock chop so yeah, pretty similar odd, to pretty Midwestern American um, that uh, you know that the this the challenge of getting Canadians to identify uh, back vowels as being different from one another that's that's yeah. big that's big all right well I'll tell you what let's uh, come back with another episode. We'll leave this as a short one, and uh, we'll come back and tidy up some of the other issues remaining, and uh, perhaps uh, if we need to go back to Canadian variations, we will. Uh, But we will leave the messy uh, aftermath of our New York-Boston distinctions as as a lesson that as vocal coaches, as actors, it's very important to get the lay of the land. It's very important to listen to many, many samples. Uh, But it's as important not to go overboard in demonstrating those differences, that you need to allow for a little bit of variation and you need to allow for uh, minor shadings of those sounds. If you're constantly trying to tell us which category or which substitution, if you want to use that word, you're using, then that foregrounds the accent in a way that's not very helpful. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, this may be the shortest uh, glossonomia ever. Um, Yeah, good. Maybe we're uh, on a new path here. And uh, I hope that uh, people will send in questions. One of the things we definitely need to do next time is to deal with Eric Singer's questions, uh, since he had several terrific ones. Yes, to remind you, if you want to send us a comment, send it to glossonomia at gmail.com. And we love it if you record your comment or question, and then we can pull that right into the show. Uh, But if you just want to write it in an email, that also works. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Eric. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Phil. Okay.